0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Tensions with China are running a bit hotter after a Chinese spy craft had to be shot down over U.S. territory a few weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about how the relationship with China, a peer, a rival, a potential but elusive partner, has changed over time, and which approach would produce a meaningful relationship. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
0: Our news in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History.
1: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And I'm really glad you've decided to join us. It hasn't been so long since leadership in this country was really trying to smooth relations with China, maybe build on them, encourage more trade and cooperation. We saw that during the presidency of Barack Obama, and locally we saw it when both Jennifer Granholm and Rick Snyder were in charge of our state. That all really changed in 2016 when Donald Trump became president. He took a really hawkish stance against China, started a trade war, and began considering them an antagonist on the international stage. Some of that hawkishness has actually continued under the Biden administration. And while Governor Gretchen Whitmer has continued working with Chinese companies, she's also stated that America needs to outcompete China on chip manufacturing. Unlike the governors before her, she no longer openly says or is really pushing the idea that we need to work with China. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk with University of Chicago scholar Kenneth Pomeranz about why our positions on China have shifted so dramatically and what to make of both a cooperative and competitive stance against China. But we want to begin the show talking about balloons. Weeks ago, the U.S. military shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon. And more recently, the military has shot down three other unidentified craft suspected of conducting private research. They were hovering over Canada, over Alaska, and right here over Port Huron in Michigan. So, to discuss what's going on with these balloons and why a Chinese balloon was hovering above the United States. We've got Jonathan Geyer here. He covers foreign policy, national security, and global affairs for Vox. And he has been writing a lot about the balloons that have been shot down by the U.S. military. Jonathan Geyer, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Hello, Stephen. Great to be here.
1: Yeah. So uh, how did this story about the U.S military shooting down balloons, one suspected from China, the others were not sure. How did this all start? Take us to the beginning of this kind of strange and enthralling story and tell us what we know about these craft.
2: I'm a Metro Detroiter. I did not think I would be on Detroit today the first time talking about UFOs. (laughs) But here I am talking about UFOs. So about two weeks ago, The suspected Chinese spy balloon, it's massive, it's flying across the country, starts somewhere on the West Coast, flying over Montana, possibly over sensitive military sites. And by the time it makes it to the East Coast, it gets shot down by an F-22. So that's a really expensive and symbolic image. The first kill of an F-22 is a suspected spy balloon. But in that process, in that path of the balloon, The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, canceled a trip to Beijing. That's a big deal. Republicans were up at arms over President Biden for not shooting it down first. And it really speaks to this moment that really feels like the Cold War, where every little antagonist move by either China or the U.S. or other countries like Russia kind of tipped the balance. And I guess what I want to talk to your listeners today is, China is a threat economically, perhaps militarily, but this whole thing was really overblown. I hate to say it was a lot of hot air, but <laughs> this inflated threat of this balloon became the talk of everything when in actual fact, we know countries spy on each other. We spy on, as the United States, we spy on other countries. There's not a whole lot of news. I spoke with tons of national security experts, people who work in the Pentagon. No one was that nervous about this one spy balloon. But it just became this incredible story, and then once the United States started, you know, looking in this near space range of something like five thousand to twenty thousand feet, and using its radars, all these other research balloons, UFOs, what have you, got picked up, and it was kind of a crazy couple of weeks in near space. So, uh, you you made a
1: really interesting point there, which is that you know countries spy on each other all the time, and. We're as guilty of that as other uh, countries are. But I think there is something about what people believe the Chinese might have been spying on or what kind of information they might have been trying to gain from this balloon that makes people nervous. Uh, When we talk about uh, tech in China and IP in China, when we talk about uh, people's uh, private data it seems that that's what everyone assumes they were after here and that's a little different for instance than spying on a country to try to determine its its military potential or or what it might do should we not be reacting uh, i guess the way we are given that they may have been trying to for instance uh, Listen in on private conversations, or, 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 or see private data about Americans.
2: So I think we have to think about all of the kind of corporate espionage, university espionage. I mean, everybody knows that China is very actively trying to keep up with the United States. The United States with the unrivaled military power in the world, unrivaled economic power, and this balloon, I don't think, is as big of a threat as all these other kind of spying things you don't really hear of. It's just, this is so kind of comical and huge and interesting and attention grabbing. Um, but you know it's really become a symbolic fight. And I think it is, as you mentioned up at the top, a policy that Joe Biden and President Trump, who don't agree on much, they agree that China is the biggest threat to the United States. It's probably the one area of bipartisan agreement in Washington. And it makes me a little nervous because I grew up at the tail end of the cold war And I think when we know that history, we know that that wasn't very useful. And I think about this one scholar, her name's Jessica Chen Weiss, recently at the State Department. She says, we don't want to out China China. We don't want to, in response to the perceived threat of China, go so far in a crazy, illiberal, angry neurotic direction that every little spy balloon becomes, you know, someone under our covers scaring us. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm thinking about. I'm absolutely sure that this is something that demands attention. And I guess the funny thing is I didn't realize balloons were so important. I (laughs) spoke with the CEO of a balloon startup last week and he says he's gotten grants from the military from intelligence agencies, American company based in Michigan, balloons are important. It's a totally interesting dynamic. And it demands a lot of attention. And I don't think, as you say, we totally know yet what this suspected Chinese spy balloon was looking at. But I don't think we need to worry about the three UFOs that were shot down.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So um, you note
1: that this is about research and capital going toward space exploration. I I wonder if you can spend a little time talking about
2: uh, what you mean by that. I mean, I think we all started noticing it with Elon Musk and Starlink, these satellites, but there is a new space race happening, a private space race. Some of it are these kind of space tourists, but what I've been following are, you know, drones, satellites, now balloons. There's a major competition and China wants to win that competition for near space. Uh, But I guess what I'm a bit concerned about is military contractors, the private sector, they have an incentive to have a space race with China. It's very good for business. So I've been tracking all the connections and kind of learning about the companies that sort of, as we know pretty well from the military industrial complex, companies that stand to benefit from increased competition. With
1: China, mm-hmm. uh, I'm talking with Jonathan Geyer. He is uh, cover he covers foreign policy and national security and global affairs for Vox. He's been writing a lot about the balloons that have been hovering above the United States, some of which have been shot down by the U.S. military. We're talking about that relationship with China, uh, the tensions that surround that relationship, and were heightened because of this new awareness, at least, of uh, the spy balloons that uh, they're using. Um, we would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of these balloons that have been shot down by our military? What specifically uh, do you believe that the Chinese are, are trying to do by sending spy balloons uh, to our to our country? How do you think this affects our relationship with China? How should it reflect uh, affect our relationship with China. Also, uh, do you have any questions for Jonathan Geyer about why there have been these balloons in the first place? Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag DetroitToday and we can work you into uh, the conversation that way. you 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 say that the Chinese, of course, want to keep up with United States, uh, and uh, there are many different theaters, I guess, in which that competition plays out. But how much is it maybe the reverse that the United States needs to keep up with China? I, I, I think, We hear lots of times about incredible uh, milestones being reached in China. Uh, Certainly, there are things about China and the way it operates that are superior to the United States. Uh, The the, the high-speed rail uh, network that they've built, for instance, uh, is much better than anything we have here in our country. I mean, how much of what we're talking about really is also about our own – fear of slipping behind and allowing another nation to be more preeminent than
2: we are. Well, I think you're so right, Steve. And I think the way that America collectively has reacted to this balloon says a lot about us Mm -hmm. and our own anxieties. I mean, we do know China is advancing really quickly on stuff like quantum computing, artificial intelligence, all these advanced technologies that Silicon Valley was once the only game in town. But I think the other thing that we have to emphasize is that Chairman Xi, the leader of China, has not had the goodwill of America worldwide. They had this zero COVID policy and then massive protests against these COVID lockdowns that extended for about three years. Uh, It's an authoritarian country. It doesn't have the kind of liberal values that the United States have. It does not have a free and open press or universities. So, yes, there is a kind of very heavyweight move to industrialize, to advance all these weapons and technologies that are rightly scaring policymakers, but it's a very different country than the United States. Mm
1: -hmm. And so what should be the approach with with China? I mean, I think it's reasonable to assume that the spying that they're doing is not likely to end uh, at the same time, there is this potential and maybe an imperative to be able to work better with the Chinese for for reasons that uh, you know advance our interests and and global interests. So Absolutely, how should we how should
2: we be approaching that? So there are these kind of global issues the climate crisis, future pandemics and global health that the United States and China are just going to have to work together on. We're the two big guys in the world. And I think we learned from the COVID pandemic that if you don't work with China, things can get really out of hand. So that means people to people. That means meeting. I mean, the other day in Germany, Secretary of State Tony Blinken met with his Chinese counterpart, but we need a lot more of that. Biden met with Xi uh in the fall, three-hour meeting, first meeting of the presidency in person, sometimes you need those face-to-face conversations to lower the temperature. I'm not saying that China is a benign actor, that you know they wish the best for the United States and the world. No, this is a tough country, but you don't kind of get to choose what countries you want to work with. And with all this talk about competition, it sort of frightens me because you don't really want to have a hot competition with China. You want to find ways to work uh, on some of the kinks uh, on global health, on technology, on climate change. These are really big global problems that the United States just can't solve alone. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, how much do, uh, of what we need to do is kind of uh, frustrated by the, the, the crude political dimensions of this, right? I mean, not just the competition between liberal and conservative politics in in our country and the posturing that 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 comes with it but this idea that any country that is or can be considered communist is is an inherent threat to uh, the United States and I think uh, you know I, I I use that term quite loosely when I when I apply it to China because uh, even though it is uh, um, it, it is a communist country in name. I mean there are lots of things about it that don't look like other other communist nations. But here that word uh, it, it invokes a, a political argument and debate that, that I think puts us into a stalemate when you even want to talk about uh, can we do better? Can we be more cooperative
2: with the Chinese? I mean I think that's right and I think it's worth keeping in mind – how different China is in the Soviet Union and and a different kind of high-intensity relationship the United States has dealt with. We don't, for example, really have any arms control agreements with China. I Mm -hmm. mean, wasn't that a really important part of the United States and Soviet Union was keeping nuclear weapons to a kind of low level, even at those tense moments of the Cold War? So there is a kind of scaremongering in Washington. We have this new China select committee in the House of Representatives that's going to just drum up all these fears about China. And I don't want to underestimate the kind of big picture threat China poses to the United States, but it's really good to be clear headed about it and talk about it and not have the kind of most intense political rhetoric. And I'll tell you, to my mind, the worst part about that is we've seen a lot of anti-Asian, anti-Pacific Islander hate crimes in the United States. And let me tell you, even members of the Biden administration realized this. It is very dangerous when you have a kind of political threat discussed about China. That affects Americans who have nothing to do with this geopolitically. So it serves no one's interest for everyone to be worked up about China in the abstract. But there are real dynamics here that need to be addressed. Yeah,
1: yeah. Again, 313 what a 1-9 is the number here on the phones? Let's start with Brian in Detroit. Brian, what's on your mind?
0: Uh, morning. I watch a lot of the news all the time, and I it seemed like to me most of the, uh, it's just the press and the uh, politicians that was mostly pushing the whole balloon thing. Because I talked to a lot of people, and nobody was really concerned with it. But then the, I watched the news, and they are like, balloon, 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 and the uh, Republican parties are balloon, balloon, balloon. So it's mostly amongst people that I know wasn't really concerning. But just watching the news, it was sort of a good week. It was just balloon, balloon, balloon every day.
1: <laughs> right. So, so Brian, do you not make much of the th- of the threat either? Do you feel like uh, maybe this is just not something I need to spend my time worrying about?
0: Exactly. I, I mean, I'm 63 years old, and I grew up doing the Cold War. And that was real worries back in the 60s when we had to— you know, go in the basement of our elementary schools and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. now everything has calmed down pretty much, but, but the uh, press and the politicians got to keep pushing fear yeah. to keep the world turning, you know? yeah, Brian I,
1: Brian, I really appreciate uh, the call and uh, that perspective. Thanks for joining. Uh, let's go next to Steve in Windsor. Steve, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, how are you today? Good, Good. how are you? Fine. I also grew up during the cold war. Um, and what I noticed then and what my teachers would say to me was that the Soviet union in those days, they had all over the world, they had little hot buttons that they would push and America was always reacting to them. And in my mind, at least maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like China is, is taking that playbook right now. Mm. I, um, that, They'll put the balloons or they'll start putting their ships in the international waters and claiming it's theirs or whatever other things come to mind. And we're all constantly on defense. You know, I think. Yeah, go ahead. I think that we need to have them reacting to us. And one of the things that comes to mind since we do so much business with them and we owe them so much money, is if we just had a conference internally where we said, let's talk about whether the dollar is at the right rate or maybe we should devalue it. If we threatened to devalue the dollar, that would be high risk for the Chinese economy. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, Steve, I, 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 I think those are really interesting uh, ideas and, and and great points. I'm glad you called in, uh, Jonathan Geyer. I wonder if you have a response to what Steve is wondering about. Are they uh, just acting as
2: provocateurs in some way with with all of what they're doing to us? I definitely think you know China's provocations. That's one way to put it. But one thing I would say is that President Biden has not had an affirmative China policy. It's really been about countering, responding competing. But how do you win over, you know, 190 other countries in the world to your side is you have to have a kind of vision and leadership that isn't just about the negative. And two years in, I'm still sort of waiting on that. There's a lot of similarities between how Joe Biden and Donald Trump think about China policy.
1: Hmm. Okay, Uh, Jonathan Geyer, it was really great to have you here uh, to discuss all of the fuss over the balloons with our listeners thanks so much for joining us here on detroit today thank you stephen we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this conversation we're going to shift a little to talk about how our relationships with china have changed over time and what a competitive or cooperative stance on china actually looks like We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. we work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
3: Bringing you news that matters.
4: Stories that impact your life.
3: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019
0: WDET,
5: Detroit's NPR station.
1: This is Detroit today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us today. We have been discussing the balloons, including one Chinese balloon, that the U.S. military has recently shot down above North America. Now we're going to turn our, rel- our attention to our relationships with China and why they have shifted so significantly in the past decade. Uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago, the talk was about how we could cooperate with China a little better. Uh, That changed pretty dramatically in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president, uh, but it has sustained through the Biden presidency. Uh, And it has also changed pretty dramatically on a local level here in Michigan. Two former governors were really enthusiastic about the idea of better relationships between Michigan and Chinese companies in particular, we don't hear so much about that anymore. To talk about all of this and to make the best cases for both a competitive and cooperative stance on China, we've got Kenneth Pomerantz here with us. He is a professor of modern Chinese history at the University of Chicago. Professor Pomerantz, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's good to be with you.
1: Also, with us is Justin Logan. He is the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato, Insti- at the Cato Institute. Uh, Justin, welcome to Detroit today.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, so, I'm going to start with you, Professor Pomerantz. Describe how our relationships with China have changed over the last two decades. Uh, why are they so much more antagonistic and hawkish? now than they were, for instance, when Barack Obama was uh, elected president?
4: Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that China is quite simply a stronger power than it was 20 years ago, and therefore represents a more serious challenge to the United States in various ways. Um, And so some people who had previously thought, oh, well, you know, we have a difference of opinion over this, but it's not going to come to anything, um, are more alarmed than they used to be. Um, Number two is the rise of Xi Jinping, who since 2012 has been the dominant political figure in China and who does represent a more hawkish political stance than his predecessors. Um, uh, Number three, actually have to go back a little bit further, but we have to go back at least to the 2000s and remember that the combination of the U.S. military misadventures in the Middle East under um, George W. Bush mm-hmm. and then the 2008 financial crash, um, you know, furiously undermined the American position in the world you know, through no fault of China's, but it did create a new strategic environment in which China perceived more opportunities and various Americans perceive, perceived more threats. And then number four is the rise of the American far right, um, Donald Trump being the obvious example um, for whom China was a kind of constant whipping boy. Um, but that, I mean, Trump is gone, but he moved the entire American political conversation um, in a way that has not been undone and that both makes it harder for people in the United States to remember that there are still good grounds for cooperating with China, even as we compete with them, and that has, undermined, once again, undermined the U.S. position in the world mm-hmm. in ways that sometimes cause the Chinese to see opportunities where maybe they didn't before, sometimes force the United States if it wants to regain a position of leadership, you know, to put or not force, encourages the United States if it wants to regain its former position to push certain buttons that maybe are best left unpushed.
1: <laughs> so, so, I I wonder if you can talk about the legitimacy of. The concerns that people have about about China. I mean, you you listed a number of of things there. Uh, they're they're different and kind of occupy different spaces and and different levels of importance. Uh, but but I wonder overall what your assessment is of how concerned we should be about the Chinese and particularly uh, things like this this balloon that they were using to. To gain some sort of, uh, you know, intelligence advantage over us.
4: Yeah. The balloon, I think, should actually be the least of our concerns. Um, Both sides spy on each other, period, the end. Um, Up to a certain point, the mutual spying is even stabilizing. Because it is useful for each side to have some sense of the range of abilities and possible intentions of the other. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And the balloon, you know, it was clumsy, it was embarrassing, it was probably not very threatening. Um, The balloon is the least of it. Um, Within the general range of spying, I think there are areas, particularly with relationship to technology theft, where China has gone sort of over the line, Um, and also some where the United States has... Gone over the line in retaliation, not so much over the line in the sense that we've you know, injured China in unacceptable ways, but that we've actually kind of injured ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been, particularly under Trump, but to some extent still under Biden, a kind of sledgehammer approach to things like making it much more difficult for Chinese graduate students and postdocs who work in the labs of American scientists at mm-hmm. universities. Um, you know, a certain amount of vetting is of course necessary. Um, I think anybody who is at or knows people at a major univer- research university could tell you stories about cases where that's just gone, gone to extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the intelligence stuff is real, um, again, I think particularly in the area of technology theft and probably also in the area of you know, various kinds of computer hacking, though that's something that, for obvious reasons, I don't know much about. Um, so you know, there, are, there are issues there that merit serious vigilance. Um, on the whole, though, I'd say the thing about spying, again, is both sides do it. It shouldn't be becoming a flashpoint in our relationship. Yeah. Um, I think the much more serious issues have to do with things like Taiwan, with things like Chinese harassment of dissidents abroad, including in the United States, um, with you know all sort, you know, with the possibility sure. being rooted about in the papers just this morning yeah. Who knows how true it really is but that china is contemplating selling arms to russia right, right. For the ukraine war you know in diplomacy as all else let's keep our eyes on the prize those mm-hmm. are much bigger things than the balloon
1: than the balloon sure Sure. Uh, Justin Logan, I want to bring you into the conversation here at this very point uh, to talk about, uh, you know, the the, the jockeying and the back and forth, really, between the Chinese, how serious it is, how serious it should be, and the things we should be focused on. Uh, uh, What what are the real threats that China poses uh, to the United States?
6: Yes, I think that the the fundamental problem here is that at the strategic level, U.S. policy toward China uh, is working against itself. So people like to talk about whether this is a new Cold War with China. And I think that's a fundamentally misleading construct, because in the Cold War, the world really sorted itself into two blocks, the Soviet Union by force and coercion within the Warsaw Pact, um, and the United States and the West uh, through a somewhat more uh, uh, um, voluntary, you could say, effort via NATO uh, and other means. But in the case of the U.S.-China relationship today, we have a very deep and indeed growing economic relationship that benefits millions of people in the United States and a larger number in China and really has been the fuel for Chinese economic growth. The problem is that that Chinese economic growth, in addition to bringing hundreds of millions of people out of the most abject poverty in China, has fueled a Chinese military and a Chinese Communist Party that is growing in power, that feels its power growing, mm. and that in a sort of very predictable way has indulged bigger Chinese views about China's role in East Asia and potentially beyond. But the United States doesn't want China to take a bigger role in East Asia. It wants to be able to patrol into the Chinese littorals like it used to be able to do in the 1990s. And from a military point of view, that's getting harder and harder. And the reason it's getting harder is because the Chinese military is getting more powerful. And one reason that the Chinese military is getting more powerful is because of China's deep engagement with the global economy. There's not any appetite I, that I can tell to seriously, you hear this phrase, decouple China from the global economy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, while China has this wild economic growth, which has slowed down, we're talking about 4 or 5% annual growth as opposed to the 7 or 8 or 9% that we saw 10 or so years ago. But still, the the Chinese economy is larger relative to the U.S. economy than the Soviet Union was at any point during the Cold War. So to my mind, the fundamental problem here is the incoherence of the economic and security aspects of U.S. strategy toward China.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're talking about the United States and China, the relationships between the two countries, uh, the tensions that have gotten a lot hotter over the last few weeks, at least in terms of rhetoric, uh, because the U.S. shot down a spy balloon that the Chinese had sent to gather information that we're not quite clear uh, about the nature of quite yet. Uh, We would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the relationship that we have with the Chinese? Should that relationship be better? Should it be more focused on cooperation uh, and collaboration instead of competition and military rivalry. Uh, What do you imagine that, for instance, we could gain here in the state of Michigan from better relationships with China? Uh, Two of our former governors, both Jennifer Granholm and Rick Snyder, saw great promise in the idea of better relationships with Chinese companies. We don't hear as much about that from Governor Gretchen Whitmer. That's because uh, the national relationship uh, with China has changed quite a bit over that time. As always, the number here on the phones is uh, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Hunter in Detroit. Hunter, welcome to the show.
5: Hi there. I got a couple of points. Uh, first of all, beginning with Deng Xiaoping, maybe even earlier, uh, the the Chinese economy shifted from socialism to what's really state-controlled capitalism, mm-hmm. and it's pretty capitalist now. Only the Communist Party's got a, a lock on, you know, directing it. And the other thing is that it, each country now has a class of, of billionaires who are. Wedded to the military industrial complex, and so this these this up of hostilities works very well to keep the the ruling class in each country hmm. well funded because each instead of cooperating as as which, which would be a better way to go forward we we're looking, we're looking at each other as military rivals, and so we can spend trillions of dollars over over years on uh, military goods and which the profits of which go to this ruling class.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point, Hunter. And I'm glad you called uh, uh, to make it. Uh, I want to have both our guests uh, address it. Justin, I'll start with you this time. How much of this is about sort of economic pressures of the economic structures within uh, the countries that that feed off of the idea of competition? Uh, uh, There are there are sort of, I think, uh, oligarchic dimensions of, uh, of the Chinese economy. Lots of people believe we have uh, moved more toward that, that form of uh, economics here in the, in the United States. Is that one of the things that's pushing uh, these tensions?
6: I mean, I'm here in Washington, D.C., and when you get on the metro, it's impossible to avoid the uh, defense contractor advertisements that are here. <laughs> so I'm in no position to uh, to push back against that idea. But I think that the the interesting thing is that when we brought China into via most favored nation status and permanent normal trade relations status in the late 90s and early 2000s, There really was this proposition that economic growth would produce political change inside China, which would liberalize it politically, which would make it look less authoritarian and maybe not a liberal democracy, but relatively more liberal. Um, And that really hasn't happened. So I think the question going forward for us is the extent to which the Chinese leadership will be able to divorce the benefits of economic growth, the benefits of economic engagement with the world from political transformation. And thus far, they've really uh, uh, done a – unfortunately, done a pretty good job of reaping the benefits of economic growth without undergoing political liberalization.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Professor Pomerantz, I wonder what you make of that.
6: Yeah, so a couple of things here. One is,
4: you know, yes, the United States has a military-industrial complex. Um, we had one 15 and 20 years ago, too, when our relations with China nonetheless managed to be significantly better. Um, I, I agree that there are people who have an interest in ginning up a new Cold War. And I agree with Jonathan that that's not a terribly good way to look at this. Um, I think, though, that politics are more complicated than that. Um, I think A lot of what's going on in the United States has to do not only with economics, but with race Mm -hmm. and with the ways in which, you know, we rant about unfair Chinese competition. And earlier we did the same about unfair Japanese competition in a way that just doesn't have the same emotional resonance. If you talk about competition from, say, Europe, Um, I also think that in the case of China, You know, because one of the really obvious differences between China and the United States has always been the much lower wages in China, um, it served certain interests, and not just military industrial interests, but, you know, industrial interests more generally, Mm -hmm. to say that, oh, look, China is stealing, you know, China is eating our lunch. We got to do something about that. We got to fight fire with fire, implying that part of what would enable us to do that would be things like breaking unions, whereas you know, we very rarely look at, oh, wait a minute, Germany is eating our lunch too. Maybe we should look at some of the things that they do, um, which would not have been as welcome to people on the American right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, we are going to take another quick break, but uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Kenneth Pomerantz and Justin Logan. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Deborah in St. Clair Shores, will get to you next. If you want to join her, 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. 9WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We've got two great guests right now talking about the U.S. relationship with China. Kenneth Pomerantz is professor of modern Chinese history at the University of Chicago, and Justin Logan is a director of defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. I want to hear from you as well. What do you make about uh, the balloons that have been shot down over United States recently. One of them that we know belongs to the Chinese. What do you make about uh, the relationship between the United States and China and the way that it's changed over the past few decades? Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. It's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. 1019 You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, I want to read a social comment before we get back to uh, back to the phones. Uh, uh, Professor Simmons on Twitter says U.S. leadership refuses to accept that the world is no longer unipolar. Not only is China and other uh, BRICK countries are on the rise, but the U.S. is on the decline, partly as a result of a super fat military establishment. Uh, let's go back to the phones here and start with Robert. Robert in Detroit, welcome to the show. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask a simple question why don't we try to intercept the balloons
3: rather than shoot them down?
1: Ah, the, uh, the, the idea Robert being that we could learn more about what they're what they're trying to do if we did that
3: uh, sure and also um, it, maybe it's cheaper than using all this military stuff than I mean they're balloons.
1: <laughs> they they are balloons, right. It's not a video game. Is uh, <laughs> Robert, I, I really appreciate the call and the question. Justin Logan, what is the reason to shoot the balloons down, I guess, rather than trying to, to, to get them and figure out while they're intact what they're actually up to?
6: Well, my understanding is that we've recently learned that we watched the balloon launch. There was a good piece in the Washington Post uh, last week that showed that, you know, we've been watching the place from which these have been launched um, for some time now. And there's some suspicion that this balloon may, in fact, have gone off course, off its intended course, that the surveillance targets were intended to be um, in Asia. But in fact, that the climatological things, which I am not an expert in, um, cause the balloon to go over the United States, but the the short version is that the altitude at which these balloons fly um, is so high that it's actually quite difficult to um, uh, to shoot them down. So the the, the the caller is right to say that it's expensive uh, to shoot down an object that's flying at forty or sixty thousand feet of altitude. Um, but if you're talking about preventing them from taking off or doing something like that, that's you know you're, you're talking about Chinese territory.
1: Mm. Uh, also, what's the difference between the kind of spying that these balloons can do, as you point out, at forty or sixty thousand feet, and and satellites? I mean, uh, the all, uh, nations like the United States and China have spy satellites. Are those better? Are they different? Uh, what what's the what's the distinction there, Justin?
6: I I think it's important that if you could drape a cloth over the things that were visible to a satellite or drape a cloth over the things that were visible to a balloon, 100 percent of the time you would do the former. Hmm. So satellites are much more effective. Um, surveillance means than are balloons. So if you want to look at uh, the upside of this uh, scenario, it's that the Chinese are using balloons to surveil the United States. But satellites are up high in the sky, in space, and they're allowed to be there. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty dovish guy generally. Um, but I do think that the United States should be kind of twitchy when it comes to its airspace, right? This is the Western hemisphere, (laughs) this is North America, Um, and we should look as though we are not going to wait terribly long and ask terribly many questions about Chinese surveillance vehicles that are indisputably in our airspace. So I'm I'm sort of conflicted because on the one hand, um, the the very fact that the Chinese are using balloons to surveil us is kind of good news. And on the other hand, it does show a kind of um, brazenness. And I think their diplomatic response was sort of ham-fisted um, after being being caught in this way.
1: Hmm. Uh, uh, we had a, another caller who couldn't stay on the line. James in Detroit wants to know if we are maybe doing more harm by shooting down these balloons, possibly by giving up targeting data we have. To other countries, exposing our abilities by using these multi-million-dollar systems. Uh, there has been much made uh, of the fact that an F-22 was used uh, to shoot down this balloon. That's the newest uh, fighter that we have in the American military. It is a next-generation uh, fighter jet. Does 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 that you know using something like that to 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 shoot down a balloon? Does that show our show our hand, Justin?
6: Well, again, it's I've seen the uh, social media posts that show that the missile that shot the balloon down cost half a million dollars, and the airplane that shot it down cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's all true. Um, but again, if you're looking at those figures in the context of the United States military expenditures, they're pretty small. Um, it's good to have something for the F-22 to do. Uh, this is its first kill. <laughs> right. um, so, I, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but uh, this yes, it's terribly expensive. Um, but if we're worried about things that are terribly expensive, and we're talking about the U.S. military budget, I don't think we have enough time in this segment <laughs> to get right. into it. Right. <laughs>
1: Uh, let's next go to Deborah in St. Clair Shores. Deborah, we've got about a couple minutes left, but uh, go ahead.
0: Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I share people's concern with whatever uh, machines or balloons or whatever that are flying over America. But more concerning to me is the fact that we have 100,000 people a year dying from drug overdoses from chemicals that are produced in China. Mm. And I'd like your guests to comment on that if they huh.
1: were. Uh, interesting point, uh, Deborah. Important point. Uh, Kenneth Pomerance, I'll, I'll come to you first. Uh, yeah. Time. I mean, the
4: production of fentanyl is a serious problem. Um, and part of an American response to that should be diplomatic. But I think we know from decades of fighting other drug wars you know mostly in this hemisphere where we often
1: oh i think we lost kenneth there uh we'll try to get him back uh on on the line but justin i wonder if you can talk about the the drug connection between the united states and china and how, how how concerned we should be about that
6: I mean, I was nodding along to Professor Pomerantz's explanation, so I'll see if I can uh, perhaps finish his thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is when there is the sky-high level for, of demand for drugs in the United States. Um, if we were to zero out the Chinese provision of fentanyl precursor chemicals today, the economics and, – and fentanyl is a uniquely cheap drug to produce right. – um, so the economics of it are just, we're trying to deny supply and demand curves. Um, and if history has proven anything, it's that that is a terribly difficult thing to do. So I certainly agree. We should be putting the screws to the Chinese diplomatically to say, we don't like this. We know that you're doing this and we know <laughs> that, um, um, you know, you haven't been responsive to our requests here but I think as a means for ending the fentanyl crisis in the United States. Uh, we really need to take a long look in the mirror at ourselves uh, if we want to end the crisis. Yeah, it's
1: an internal issue more than anything else. Okay, Justin, Logan, uh, it was really great to have you here as part of this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. It was my pleasure. Also want to give thanks to uh, Kenneth Pomerantz, Professor of Modern Chinese History at the University of Chicago. His line uh, cut out, but uh, he was a great contributor to this conversation as well. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to be talking with a good friend of the show, Anika Goss, who runs Detroit Future City, about new research that suggests where Detroiters have the best opportunities to achieve high paying jobs. If you like this show and enjoy listening, remember to share it with your friends and your family, your neighbors. You can find us at WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.